Africa. So that's my beautiful wife for 38 years. We, go ahead and change. Oh, maybe it's frozen. Are we frozen? So, okay, oh, now, okay, now we're really going fast. I don't know who put, where that little bar came in on the bottom, but may the Lord bless it, that orange one. I, I didn't do that. But anyway, so we have come from the wonderful state of Minnesota and primarily been serving over in East Africa. Next slide. Uh, in two countries where we spent the largest number of our years, in Ethiopia and in Kenya. Right now we're based in Kenya. And then in January we're going to shift back to Ethiopia full time. But just to get an idea of populations and location, you can see the Indian Ocean here over on the right, Somalia to the east, Ethiopia to the north, Uganda, Tanzania. We're in Nairobi. Kenya has 51 million. Ethiopia is double that size. So we live in Nairobi, and some of you have been there. Uh, it is a massive city. It's really hard to count. I think we're having, it might be my, the way I put the slide presentation together. Uh, it's from Africa, so it moves slowly. <laughs> but Nairobi is a massive city between, it's hard to say, four, five, six million people. And the one thing that we really have pain with is traffic. We just call it the jam. I mean, and, and you, there's some roads, you could be at a place in 15 minutes, but with the jam, it could be four hours. And so that, that's the jam down on the right. And so Karina and I, we talk about, wow, driving in Minnesota in these broad uh, interstates, it's just truly amazing. I know that there's sometimes slower traffic, but anyway. So we live in Nairobi. <clears throat> Next uh, but we are headed to Ethiopia, and what's really exciting, the young man sitting by me there on the left and up in the front with his wife is our new general superintendent, just elected not long ago. He's quite a young man, but a real man of integrity and the spirit, and he's really praying for revival in Ethiopia. And while we've been serving in Kenya, we were up, up there this past January, and he sat down with Kareen and me and said he really believes God wants us to move back to Ethiopia full-time working with him, working with the school, advancing the ministries across the country. And as we prayed, we felt a confirmation. So we're very excited about that. On this right side, this is Pastor Merga, and this is a huge, open, incredibly valuable piece of property that the government has given the Ethiopia Assemblies of God. So we're really excited about seeing a church planted in that place that's going to reach thousands and thousands for the Lord Jesus Christ. We have served in Ethiopia. During the last term, we built the Bible school underneath, and some of you have visited that, and that's just some of our fabulous students whom we really love serving together in Ethiopia. But Ethiopia has its challenges. You have about 30% of the population are what we call Ethiopian Orthodox. That's the, a priest on the left, and they would trace Christianity in Ethiopia all the way back to the 300 A.D.s. Uh, and then you have growing Islam, about 50% of Ethiopia are Muslims. And so you've got these two really powerful religions, but both are truly blinded to the reality of the gospel. So we're thrilled to have the opportunity of going back and serving in this country. So that's our family. 
So Corrine and Ruthie is our youngest, and their, their baby, our grandson Nolan, and her husband is on the far side, and then Julie is in the lighter blue. So that, that, that's the clan, and I'll show you a few more pictures of them. So this is, the next one is Julia, and she became a career missionary, raised her support during COVID. Some of you are supporting her. And she's overseen these 16-plus languages translated uh, with this Discovery Series material that we're using across the continent. So we're just so thankful and proud of our kids loving the Lord and serving and being called to serve. And then uh, here is our other part of the family and our dear grandson, Ruthie, Nolan, and Devin, serving among Muslims and just through relationships, looking for opportunities to uh, present the gospel and see a great revival and a people movement on that island. And we're praying for that. So this is our grandson. Kid was born in Nairobi. He'll turn two next month. He's never put a toe in the United States of America. And I'm, I'm actually quite concerned and praying, what's it going to be like? What kind of culture shock does a little MK have when they come back to this country? But I'm so proud of his dad. <laughs> he's praying you know I don't know that a two-year-old really knows what's going on but the modeling and the prayer in that kind of a context to grow up surrounded by Islam but to be in a family that loves Jesus and know Jesus we're just so thankful for that we went through COVID like you we're still going through it and I wanted to say thank you so much for your prayers and your faithfulness and I want you to know we've been praying for you because this has had a world impact. Not only did we have COVID, but at the same time, we had a, a major locust invasion, and then we also had flooding, so it was kind of like the triple whammy. But all of us have experienced that, and yet, to the glory of God, in the next slide, it was really a miracle when COVID struck one of the largest a television networks approached the Kenya Assemblies of God and said, we want to give you at a major reduced price television time every Sunday from 12 to 1 o'clock, national uh, outreach uh, to preach the gospel. I had the privilege of preaching one of those Sundays. More than 1 million homes. So we're talking maybe 4 or 5 million people out of 50 million have been hearing the gospel presented through the Kenya Assemblies of God across the nation you know, during COVID, meeting under trees, doing whatever. But the kingdom is advancing. People are getting saved. And we just all say, praise the Lord for what he's doing among us. A lot of our ministry is Bible school related. The Lord really prepared us here in our years at North Central. We had no idea how that would all work out. But raising up that next generation of pastors and missionaries for Ethiopia, we can never send enough missionaries. We need more, but we'll never have enough to reach the billions and billions. But if we can see national churches raised up and equip and train and multiply ministry, uh, we have a, a chance of seeing the entire world reached for the Lord. So we love working with people. Just before COVID closed everything down in February of 2020, Karina and I were selected to lead this long acrostic, OPTIA, which stands for the Association of Pentecostal 
theological education in Africa. So along with our other duties, more on the local level, we have the privilege of working with Bible schools across the continent that are Pentecostal, not just AG, but if they're Pentecostal, to really work at quality delivery and content to address heresies and craziness and just really strengthen the kind of people that we're producing through our Bible schools. So we really covet your prayers as we work with many, many schools and wonderful people. But, but that's why we're there. That's why we're there. Almost 900 million people just in Africa without the gospel. Almost 900 unreached people groups with their own unique languages and cultures. So the, the harvest is still great. It's great here in Minnesota. It's great every place in the world. Some place it's greater. Every, every individual is important to God. There's just some who haven't had an opportunity. So keep praying for us. Thank you. Just wanted you to put, put some eyes on some of the things that we live in every day. We are so thankful for this district. We are so thankful for you, Pastor Mark. James, thank you for being such a gracious host. Take your Bible, please, and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 8. The title of my thoughts this afternoon before we go into prayer is a question, who will go and explain? Who will go and explain? And I know, again, these are stories that you have read many times, but this is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south. By the way, the word south in Greek could also mean it's exactly the same word at noon time, at noon. I actually think that would be a better translation. Go at noon because it's ridiculous. Go at noon on the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Who is going to go into the desert at high noon? You better hear from the Lord. So... He started out, and on the way he met an Ethiopian, an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, or the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was on his way home, sitting in the chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the Spirit of the Lord said to Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. And Philip ran. He ran. A jogger for Jesus. He ran to the chariot. And he heard, you know, he's running along beside the chariot. And he hears this guy reading. I mean, this must all be in Greek. He hears him reading probably from the Septuagint. And isn't it interesting, he hears him reading and he says, do you understand what you're reading? I mean, you know, you can read, you can have the words, but do you understand? And he said, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And he invited Philip to jump in to the chariot and the eunuch was reading and I just find it so interesting that Luke slows down the narrative and actually gives us the words of what it was that the Ethiopian was reading from the book of Isaiah. And you know what chapter this is, don't you? 
He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? His life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch stopped and he looked at Philip and he said, Who was the prophet writing about? Himself or someone else? One of my favorite verses in the Bible says, and beginning with that verse, Philip preached the good news of Jesus. You know, like, pick a verse and I'll preach Jesus from there. And as they traveled along the way, you know, notice that there's not even, um, you know, a stopping of the chariot, a singing just as I am without one plea, a, a prayer of conversion. It just, it just kind of keeps going, and all of a sudden they're driving, and in the middle of the desert there's an oasis, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, and there, isn't this interesting, look, there is water, why shouldn't I be baptized? Once again, footnote, how did this guy know anything about baptism? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. I love this. And they both together, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water. Philip baptized him. And when they came up, Philip was raptured away and ended up in Azotus about 20, 30 miles away. But don't you love this statement? You know, can you imagine the eunuch came out of the water? He's kind of getting the water out of his eyes and Philip is gone. But he says he went on his way rejoicing. What was the rest of the story? You hear a whole lot about going. You hear a lot about compassion. I am an old-fashioned, traditional missionary. And I want you to know there is still need for men and women who've been in the ministry a long time to heed the call like a Philip and say, we need you to come not only for live dead or for urban tribes, we need people coming to our Bible schools and into our churches to help make disciples of the nations. And you can't do that in one week or two weeks. You're going to have to come just like you go into a church to pastor a church. I'm making the appeal that not only do we need the going and we need the compassion, we need the band-aids, we need the food, we need the water, but we need people who will come and say, God has called me, I'm going to stay here long enough to learn language and culture and make disciples of the nations until Jesus takes me home or raptures me. I just want you to put that one in the, the file and pray about it. We have, I mean, we don't have any, any Bible school people right now in Rwanda. We just got a couple of new people in Uganda. We don't have anybody teaching in our Bible schools. I'm talking about missionaries in Tanzania. We're, we're stepping out of the Bible school in Kenya. We won't have any AG missionaries there on a full-time basis. We'll be the only ones back in Ethiopia. We don't have anybody in Sudan. We don't have anybody in South Sudan. We don't have anybody in Eritrea. We don't have anybody in Djibouti. 
I'm just talking about our little corner of the world. Don't think that, oh man, you know, you got that one covered. And some of those places we have a church, a strong church, some we don't. We're going back to Ethiopia. They may have 250 churches among 100 million people. So I'll just say, Lord, anyway, isn't this an amazing story? And I remind you that as God inspired Luke and he wrote these two volumes, the, the first one concentrating on the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, and then shifting over. And don't you like the way he begins his second volume, Acts chapter 1-1, and he said what Jesus began to do and teach, the implication is the disciples, empowered by the Spirit, continue doing and continue teaching. And I think about the fact that Luke wrote this to Theophilus, and in my speculation, This guy is a radical committed believer in Rome leading a house church and the letter is going to come to him saying, do you get the point? What Jesus began to do and teach and what the disciples continue to do and teach. Now Theophilus, you and your people must continue doing and teaching until the world is reached, until Jesus comes back. And isn't it both good and bad and sad that Jesus pulled those disciples together in chapter 1 and they're still kind of confused about the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of God and Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Here's what you need to know, 1-8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Not to get saved, but to be empowered and emboldened to go and proclaim the gospel and cast out the demons and heal the sick and discern what God is saying. Be filled with the power of the Spirit and go. Jerusalem. The region, Judea, the neighboring ethnic cross-cultural group, Samaritans, and to the ends of the earth. It happened in chapter 2, didn't it? Tongues, fire, hallelujah. And then they began to go, right? Wrong. Chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, Jerusalem, 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 Jerusalem. Twin cities, twin cities, twin cities, twin cities. I mean, we love twin cities. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. What caused them to finally begin to obey? I hate, I hate that we have to look at that, but you know the answer. Persecution, martyrdom. See, the Lord has a bigger agenda than our comfort. It's to reach a world with the good news. And unfortunately, I mean, I don't want this, but if it's going to take persecution or something to stir up the nest... That's the priority. And so God takes this crazy terrorist, Saul, who is ravaging the church. And I find it very intriguing, and I don't have time to develop it, but in 8.1 it says, And the whole church was scattered except the apostles. Now it seems like, and I mean, maybe I need to go back and read 1.8 again. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, and Jerusalem. The whole church was scattered except the apostles. And what what we want to note, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as Luke is keeping record, he's not going to stay with the people that stay in Jerusalem. 
And it doesn't matter who they are and where they came from, but if they're willing to advance the gospel and proclaim it where it hasn't been heard, he's going to tell their story. And while the 12 remain in Jerusalem, here's a guy that comes out of the shadows, Philip, who says, I'll go, and he goes to Samaria, first of all, people that are hated and despised by the Jews, and has an amazing revival. And do you remember who he is? Go back to chapter 6, when they had controversy inside the church because of some little bit of racism between Jews born in Israel and Jews born outside of Israel. See, it wasn't a perfect church. They weren't distributing the food equally. Then, then the disciples, the 12, called the whole church together and said, we got to address this problem. And they said, look for seven people full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom and appoint them to handle this food distribution. The first was Stephen. The second is our man, Philip. He was not one of the 12. He's not a dynamic leader. He wasn't district superintendent, missions coordinator. I mean, we don't, all we know is he was giving out food, washing dishes, cooking beans, taking care of widows. But when the time came, man, he goes, he goes, and he preaches the gospel. And it says he was casting out demons. They were shrieking, and he was healing the sick. And even the main sorcerer in the city came to Christ. He believed. He was baptized. He began to follow. So now, you know, just think about this. Here's Philip. I mean, if it were you and me, you go in and you have this amazing revival. You are loved. You are esteemed. You are appreciated. You got a big crowd. You're in a city. And suddenly, the Lord sends an angel and says, time to move. What? High noon. Now, Lord, you know, desert, it's the desert, come on. High noon, desert road going from Jerusalem to Gaza, go. What would you do? What would you do? What would I do? Come on, God. I'm, I mean, look, you're using him. Revival, miracles, look, God, me, baby, do it. Go. And it just says he went. He went. I wonder how long he was in that desert. He's out there with the scorpions and the rattlesnakes, and it's about 200 degrees. And all of a sudden, here comes a chariot or two or three. I don't know if it's a caravan. It's just, but it's a chariot. And the spirit noticed, man, this really grabbed me. The spirit said, go to that one. Don't you appreciate what Brother Choco said last night about being in the presence? Being in the presence. Thanks so much, Pastor James, for being sensitive to the Spirit. Are we sensitive? Go, go to that one. Go to that one. And again, here is Philip, and he said, okay, and he just takes off running. And he's running by that guy. He's already been in the desert, dehydrated. And he's running along, and he hears the guy reading, and he says, do you understand? 
Let me just talk a little bit about this Ethiopian. By the way, the text, if I accounted correctly, I think six times it calls him the eunuch. And that's very, very important. He's an Ethiopian. I like that. Do you know what? If you were to go back to Luke chapter 11, verse 31, that's the story of the queen of Sheba coming to Solomon. And when Jesus was talking about himself and that he was greater than even Solomon, he says she came, now listen to this phrase, from the ends of the earth. Have you heard that phrase before? You'll make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Here the ends of the earth has come in some way within the range of where Philip is out in that desert. He's an Ethiopian. That, that, that's probably Upper Nile. It could be Khartoum, Sudan. It could be further down over into uh, where we are in Ethiopia. And you can Google map it. You know what? From Khartoum to Jerusalem, think of this, is 1,100 miles. One way. This man was serious. He is well-educated. He can read. He is religious. He is the treasurer. He's the Choco de Jesus of Ethiopia. It's good he's not here, I think. I hope. He's a treasurer. He is wealthy. He handles money. He must have been highly trusted to give him time off, a sabbatical. How long would it take in a chariot to go? And what were the roads like, my goodness, from Khartoum or Addis Ababa or someplace all the way up to Jerusalem? So we, what do we know? He's an Ethiopian. He is, like most Ethiopians today, he is probably gorgeously black, he is tall, he is skinny, he is noble, he is an African, and he has come a long way to worship the living God in Jerusalem. He's educated, he's wealthy, he's serious. He has spent the money to buy a scroll of Isaiah. I can't even imagine the value of that in that day. And to buy that scroll, and there he is, he's bouncing down the road, reading that scroll, probably Septuagint in Greek. Out of his background, he's reading it. Do you understand? I don't. Not unless somebody explains. I mean, it makes me realize how many people are looking for God, and they may even be reading Scripture, and you said it so well, Brother James. God keeps looking for people to come alongside and help. I mean, the guy had the Bible, but he needed someone to explain. The title of my little message this afternoon, Who Will Go and Explain? Not just go. Not just dig a well. Not just feed some starving people. Who's going to go and be there long enough and build enough trust and relationship that you're going to be able to unpack the truth of Scripture and make it relevant? He's jogging. I don't understand. You want to come up here? He jumps in there. 
Why is it important, this particular text? We love Isaiah 53. But somehow, we don't usually read the part that is in this text. You want to flip over to Isaiah 53 just for a moment? Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I mean, we start there in the beginning. He grew up like a shoot. Verse 3, 53.3. He was despised. He was rejected. A man of sorrow, familiar with suffering. Despised, esteemed him not. Here's where we focus. He bore our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, accursed. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. That is not the part that is quoted by Luke that is being read by the Ethiopian. What is the part that is recorded? He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shear is silent, he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? His life was taken from the earth. This man was a eunuch. You know what that means. Either by cutting or crushing, he'd been castrated. Because he was working with nobility and they didn't want to accidentally mess up the royal line. He'd been crushed. I think you probably know too that in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1, it says no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, I'm speculating. This man went 1,100 miles one way to go worship God at the temple. I don't know how he heard of the Lord. It could have go, I mean, you could be going back 900 years to the time of the Queen of Sheba and her experience and the reports that she brought. And there's all kinds of amazing theories, even about where the Ark of the Covenant is today. But somehow he had heard enough, and we, we're not told that he had actually converted, that he was a proselyte, and especially if he had been castrated, there's no way he could have become a full-fledged Jew. But there was enough of a heart and a hunger to want to come and know that God and experience God. He went on this amazing pilgrimage all of these miles. Do you know that in that day, as you walked into the temple in Jerusalem, you went through the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, and you would come to the court ready to enter in with, to the Jewish men, and there was a sign that said, no, no Gentiles can enter here at the chance of being put to death, and if you have had any of these other issues, you're disqualified. Now, I'm speculating, but I think there's evidence in this text I think this man traveled all those miles looking forward to that encounter with God, being in his very presence, maybe offering sacrifice, and he got to the gate and was turned back. By religion, by tradition, by rules and regulations. 
Now, again, I know we're in, in good hermeneutics, we're not supposed to speculate into the psychological, but I can't, I mean, can you imagine the misery, the pain, the embarrassment, the hurt, the discouragement? It says he's returning. And I, when I read this text, what really touches my soul is he's reading his own story. Led to the sheep to be slaughtered and yet silent. Do you know the Maasai today, their young men as a group will go not through castration but circumcision. And so as a group, they will be taken and their foreskin cut, and they are not allowed to whimper or make a noise, and if they do, they're disqualified. I mean, here are young guys anywhere from 12 to 18, and, and there's, there's no medication, and there's no numbing, they're just cut. And part of their manhood is you just suck it up. And I wonder in his experience, if he's talking about Having to be silent in the midst of the pain. Being humiliated. I mean, who doesn't want to be married and have kids? And because somehow he had the skills and was recruited into the royal court, he goes through this experience, the humiliation. And listen, he says, humiliated and deprived of justice. Who spoke up for him? And who will speak of his descendants? He wasn't going to have any kids. Who would marry him? Couldn't have a baby anyway. And in our culture of Africa, that's about the worst thing that can ever happen. And I read that, and I can see why he focuses in. Wow, somebody else has gone through what I have experienced and the rejection, and the pain, and the humiliation, and the lack of justice. Who is this? And you and I know who it is. Who else? Who else has walked where we have walked, and suffered where we have suffered, and gone through the pain that we have gone through, and far more? But the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he reads that, old brother Philip says, Hey, buddy, let me start right there and give you the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't take away the pain. I didn't take away the humility, the humiliation, the lack of justice, the reality he would never have kids. But it gave him hope. It began healing. It began a transformation. He was, he was disapproved and not accepted back in the temple, the house of the Lord. But God... Think of it. God loved that guy, that Ethiopian, so much. He pulled Philip out of a revival in Samaria and sent him into a desert, just kind of like the story this morning, to save one person. We want numbers. I don't know if the Lord is impressed. He wants obedience. And I pray for numbers. We pray for massive revivals. But Philip said, I'll go. 
Uh, he goes to Samaria. I'll go. I'll go to the desert. Running by that chariot, and he tells him the good news of Jesus. Well, as you see the story, it doesn't even mention the fact that at some point he accepted the Lord, but he obviously did. They come to an oasis. And I wonder if he had studied enough in Judaism and knew about all the washings and cleansings. But he said, you know, I, I want to be baptized. Maybe in the process, Philip had talked to him about that. But where he was so alone, so rejected, I find it so encouraging and, and, and amazing that it says, Philip and the eunuch together went down into the water. See, baptism is not only where we usually emphasize our public declaration of faith and loyalty to Jesus, but in the New Testament time, baptism was a rite of passage of entry into the body of Christ. It was the way they became, became a member and joined the community. He had tried to get into the community and that religious center in Jerusalem, but got slapped in the face. But here Jesus meets him and sends an ambassador, and together they go down into the water. He has company. He has community. He has fellowship. He is saved, and he is not alone. What an amazing Lord. And what the story ends, as you know, they come up out of the water. Philip had completed his mission. And the Lord said, okay, that's it. And raptured him out of there. But there was enough of an encounter and enough faith and enough encouragement that that man could go back those 1,100 miles in that chariot re Joicing. I wonder what he said when he got back to the Candace, the queen, and to the community. The transformation. Maybe that rejoicing even implies an encounter with the Holy Spirit. But it certainly means his life had been transformed and he took the message where Philip maybe would never go. But because one man was willing to step out of a revival and walk into a desert. He met a man and he introduced him to Jesus, the only one who could heal his heart, his pain, and his sin. Who will go and explain? Shifarau is a dear, dear friend of Kareen and me. He comes from a very noble, he's an Ethiopian, he comes from a very noble Muslim background. If you've studied Islam, when Muhammad first began to preach the revelation he had, people began to believe, but he was persecuted right away, and some people fled from Medina across the Red Sea and were given safe haven in Ethiopia. Shifarel traces his genealogy back to that family. So, I mean, they are highly, highly respected among Muslims in Ethiopia, having that direct connection to the prophet. During the communist regime, they were attacking Christians, Muslims, anybody of high rank, nobility, or spirituality. Shifarel was a young man and married, so he tried to flee from up around Addis Ababa in the, north, the central part of the country on foot to cross over into Kenya and seek refuge. 
They got down to a little, little village not too far from the Kenyan border. They'd run out of money, and all they had was one little box of macaroni. And he said to his wife, well, let's cook it, and we'll just trust Allah somehow to sustain us. I mean, we're talking about a little box of not cheese macaroni, just macaroni. So she's boiling it in water. And then there's a knock on the door. And somehow a Muslim friend had heard they were in town. And he came. And, of course, in good Ethiopian Middle Eastern hospitality, well, you're welcome. <laughs> but all they had was that little macaroni. And Shifaral said to his wife, look in the box, see if there's anything more. She went back and looked in the box, and it was full. And the Holy Spirit, I mean, Shifaral didn't know anything about the gospel. The Holy Spirit spoke to him in that moment and said, I'm the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you will put your faith in me, I'm going to keep providing for you. They cooked that extra spaghetti, they fed macaroni, they fed their neighbor, he left. The next day they went and the box was full. And the next day the box was full. I mean, I'm not making this up. I mean, it's kind of like the widow woman, right? But it was macaroni. This happened for quite a long period of time. While they're there, they decided they weren't going to try to cross the border. But he was so shocked at what was happening. He said, I went walking through that little town to try to find a born-again, some Christian, he didn't know that kind of terminology, to tell me what in the world was going on. And he found a guy from the Full Gospel Church. We call it the Muluangel, the Full Gospel Church. They're brothers and sisters of ours. And this guy said, Shifaral, let me tell you what's happened. And he explained to him about, he started at that passage, and he explained to him about the Lord Jesus, and he led him in prayer. After that communist regime fell, Shifarel came back to Addis Ababa, and he came to our Bible school. And I remember when he came in, I mean, you talk about green, he didn't know squat. I mean, when we start talking about Jesus is the Son of God, I mean, all the red lights were flashing, and that he was the Savior of the world. All he knows is that the Lord had met him there and done a miracle and had told him he should move forward with his life. And little by little by little by little, Shifaral grew in his knowledge and faith, and at some point he really grasped the reality of who Jesus is and what he came to do, and he put his faith in him. Shifaral today is one of the greatest evangelists you'll never hear about. I have sat with him, and he'll say, Brother Doug, let me show you where I was this weekend. And, he'll, and he's dressed up in his white Muslim attire with his prayer cap. He's back in some remote Muslim area where he has preached, and he's baptizing 200 people in a little river. And the next week he's someplace else. And the next week he's someplace else because of who he was and what the Lord has done in his life. And now he has become an amazing apologete, defending the gospel, proclaiming the truth, being used by the Lord. The Lord did a miracle, but he graciously brought him to us so we could invest and disciple and see him catalyzed for the glory of the Lord. Who will go and explain? Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. I wonder how many other Shifarals are out there. How many other Ethiopians that have been denied of justice and humiliated by the devil who comes to kill, steal, destroy 
people in Africa, people in the U.S. being ripped and torn and shredded by the enemy and by religion and they're disappointed and frustrated and they're looking for hope. God, you're calling us to go and be there and explain. May we be willing in obedience to go where you tell us to go when you tell us led by the Spirit, that room, that desk, that chariot. Lord, may we be willing to go that we can explain the beauty of our Lord who was wounded for our transgressions, who was bruised for our iniquity, whose chastisement ours fell upon Him, and whose, through whose stripes we are healed. Through you we are reconciled to God. Through you we are healed of the humiliation and the injustice and the pain. Through you we can have spiritual offspring and see generations raised up to the glory of God. Lord, speak to my friends in this great district. And may they be like little Samuel. Lord, Your servant is listening.